This is the Blatcast, a sometimes fast-paced but usually meandering look at the world. So kick back, get ready for quite possibly the longest one hour to perhaps the shortest two hours and 56 minutes of your life. And now, here's Christian Blatt. Welcome to the Blackcast, celebrating our 451st episode, and it seemed like the only way to really do that is a conversation on Ray Bradbury, because, of course, he is the author of Fahrenheit 451, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about his career and uh, so much more, and starting with the idea of commemorating one of the most influential science fiction writers, uh, as to say, of the 20th century, but also just in general. Uh, I immediately thought that I'd love to talk to our old friend, uh, Douglas Brody, uh, who is the author of many, many books, uh, too many to name, but the new one is Midnight Matinees. I'm a personal fan of uh, Star Trek Universe and Gene Roddenberry Star Trek. We'll talk about Star Trek, Twilight Zone, and so much more. But first, uh, Douglas, thank you so much. Thanks for uh, taking the time to come back on the Blackcast. It's always a pleasure, man. Uh, great. And uh, just remember to project like uh, you're you're in a big le- you're in a big lecture hall, and somebody's trying to take a nap in the back, and you want to make sure. How's that? Like- I'm talking. Now. <laughs> That's perfect. Uh, I want to talk about uh, Fahrenheit 451 in the sense that I think a lot of people know the story. I certainly had to read it in high school, uh, and just the irony that this book about this dystopian future where all books are burned of course in and of itself the book has been banned uh in a number of schools uh, throughout the country uh talk a little bit about the uh, impact of this story and you know it came out a few years after george orwell's 1984 and it seemed like the you know orwell and bradbury certainly were worried about where the future uh was headed Turned out they were right about some things, not right about others. Mm-hmm. But talk about kind of the historical, this moment in time, the book was written in 1953, and just these concerns about the idea that it wouldn't take much for all books to be burned instead of just a handful of objectionable ones. Well, what's so interesting today, looking back on exactly what you said, is this. The, uh, the book, when it was written, was, of course, dystopian future. It was predicting a future in which we have a negative utopia. Everything goes wrong. And at the time, uh, the idea for Ray Bradbury was, what if the government, you know, based on Hitler's book burnings, taken to the ultimate extreme? And what if every country had some sort of a tyrant who was doing that? afraid of ideas and trying to destroy actual physical books. Now, what we have today is something very, very different. Now, there was a great mid-1960s film version by Francis Francois Truffaut, and it was a great film, and the book was still very relevant to the, then, uh, would think of the social revolution and cultural going on in the mid-1960s. Today, almost the opposite of the book has proven to be true. The idea is the government is hardly interested in getting rid of books. The main problem is the public doesn't care anymore. And the, the problem is trying to get the public to buy books and or if not buy them, read them, go to libraries to read them. 
And if anything, people want to read them in uh, electronic form rather than the actual holding the book itself. And I remember Ray Bradbury once telling me that the idea of not only reading a book, but holding it in his hands was almost a spiritual experience. And people who love books can understand that. For example, I'm aware that many people today read my books on various forms other than holding the book in their hand. And I don't have a problem with that. However, what I do have a problem with is the thought that there might ever be a time when my books go directly to that and are not published in book form at all. If I can't hold a book in my hand, I don't care if only 1% of the people left are reading it in book form or less than 1%. But if I couldn't hold it in my hand and know that somebody's reading it in book form, then I wouldn't be able to write anymore. Uh, that idea of the book is sort of a spiritual thing. Many movies makers say that they love holding the celluloid in their hand when they're working on a film. And if everything was going to go directly to DVR, they'd have to stop making movies. Ray Bradbury felt that about pulp, the actual paper it's printed on. And it's something I, I understood completely when he told me that it's exactly how I felt. Yeah, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, the idea that you, you you know, if you have the option, especially people who travel a lot, having, you know, digital versions of books and other forms of media certainly makes sense. But the idea that, you know, you can have a book, you know, there's there's two great, uh, there's olfactory senses to it. There's the great smell of a brand new book, but also an old book has like a great smell and you just know that it's from so long ago. And to just have that add to the senses, especially if it's your own personal copy that you've had for a while, it might even take you back to reading it and actually holding it for the first time. And uh, I feel the same thing uh, about music. You know, I mean, you have a little bit of a resurgence of, of vinyl, I grew up in the age of CDs, really, and I just like to look at the artwork and read about the album. Uh, when it's not tangible, I think your connection to whatever the media is, is it's it's not as sincere. It's much more tenuous. And honestly, it's a lot more disposable if you don't physically have it. Absolutely. Just to give you an example, I think you're so right by bringing up vinyl. Uh, people who are into it will admit that the sound on a scratchy old vinyl record may not be nearly as good as when they fix it up for a modern CD, or even those are almost irrelevant today. But uh, they love holding the record in their hands, and they love holding the cardboard box. I believe to my right, you can't see it, but besides all those books and things, that are up there. There are stacks and stacks of my old vinyl records, and I have a special love for them. And it's the same thing with paper for books. And as I was saying, uh, I'm not sure if Fahrenheit 451 is relevant uh, any more than 1984 is. So much of what 1984 predicted is the opposite of what happened. And they realized that when they went to make a movie of it in 1984, which starred Richard Burton. They're doing this, you know, back in the 1950s, there was a movie which really seemed relevant at the time. The 1984 movie, when I saw it, my reaction was, wow, so much turned out not to be true. 
And the same thing with a year ago when there was out two years ago, a new film version of Fahrenheit 451 TV film. And I realized, you know, it's the opposite. The government is not going to spend any money having teams running around trying to knock off books when they feel nobody reads them anymore. People could care less that, you know, uh, well, you know, they're almost irrelevant except to the few who do care. And they're a really small minority. Let me mention something else. Brad sure. Gary told me about Fahrenheit 451. And that is this. Um, Fahrenheit 451 is absolutely a work of dystopian science fiction. Your comparison to 1984 is perfect. Now, people think of Ray Bradbury as a writer of science fiction because of the impact of that book. He always felt that it was not typical of his writing, but rather atypical of his writing. He did not define himself as a science fiction writer, dystopian or otherwise. He saw himself as an imaginative fantasy writer and felt that something wicked this way comes or dandelion wine were much more his genre or metier. And Rod Serling told me the same thing about his own writings. People may have perceived the Twilight Zone and other works uh, as uh, examples of his work, the definitive Rod Serling. But for him, uh, the, one of the few works that he was involved with that truly was dystopian science fiction is Planet of the Apes, the movie version from Pierre Boulle's novel. And he felt that that was very untypical of what he did. He felt that while there certainly was uh, science fiction on the Twilight Zone, it was usually written by other people like Richard Matheson and that his own works were imaginative fantasy. Here's a key difference. In science fiction, like by H.G. Wells or Jules Verne, they're writing the history of the future. And most science fiction, true science fiction, is considered by fans to be very hard. That means the, the, the technique of time travel or space travel or underwater travel is explained very thoroughly as it is in the works of Byrne and Wells. Whereas in imaginative fantasy, those things don't matter. It's not explained how somebody moves through time in a Rod Serling episode like A Stop at Willoughby or Walking Distance in which a guy very much like Rod finds himself either going back into his own boyhood or to a mythic 1850s Mark Twain Riverside Village or whatever he shows up in. It's never explained. You have to take it for granted. That's imaginative fantasy. It's the psychological reaction of the character to where he shows up that matters. Whereas in say, The Time Machine or 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or any of the other Wells Verne stories. It's how you get there, how you make the trip that matters. And for a perfect kind of an example, 
I would say that do remember that when John Houston made a remarkable and underrated version of Moby Dick in 1956 as a film from the Herman Melville story, he chose Ray Bradbury to write it. Bradbury has one or two other film credits, but that's his big one. And he loved writing it because if you think about it, the book is so rich and it works on so many levels, but the level that Ray Bradbury wanted uh, and that Houston wanted for his film was the idea of imaginative fantasy. What is the whale? Is it a realistic, biggest, most dangerous whale you've ever seen? Or is it God or the devil or both or nature, something that transcends that? And there's even a scene in the middle of the film based on the book in which they experience the fire in the sky and the masks, uh, the masts of the ship become like electronic. And uh, everybody stands around as sailors did in ancient times at that phenomenal phenomenon, which is both realistic and spiritual. That's Ray Bradbury. And it is not science fiction, but it sure certainly is imaginative fantasy. And that's the really connective link between Ray and Rod. And keeping in mind, I knew Rod in a way I did not know Ray. Um, I only had several meetings with Ray. Uh, wonderful ones, but Rod I knew during the last four years of his life, up until 1975, when I was living in Syracuse and he was living in Ithaca, New York, you know, 40 minutes away approximately. So I can talk about Rod much more knowledgeably than I can about Ray, although yeah, he sure. spans a boat. Yeah, well, we'll definitely uh, talk about how they intersect in a moment. I just wanted to go back a little bit because there's a few things. Uh, one, sort of the idea of 1984 was this idea that Big Brother was watching and, you know, the idea that people in 1948 and beyond would be terrified of it. But now, I mean, it's almost like, you know, in all the vampire stories, you have to invite a vampire in your home. We have all invited Big Brother. Uh, I mean, I'm holding I have an iPhone right here. You know, I mean, that's go that that says where I'm going. People have Alexa and Siri and all these things that listen to them talking. We put them all in our house and we don't really think about it because it's like, oh, yeah, I can just, you know, find out what the weather is tomorrow by not having to type anything. And, you know, I think that uh, I don't think that people foresaw how much we would want to have that information readily available and how easily it would be done. And then also to the idea for 1984, sorry, for uh, Fahrenheit 451, uh, Dominicus Saxon says his Kindle is okay, but nothing is better than feeling a book in your hands. But I do feel like these are starting to be sort of the minority of these feelings. If you had the government going around looking for books in people's houses, a lot of them would be like, I don't have any. Do you, do you do you want the you know the the junk mail that I get the the yeah. ads? That's all I have that I can read. You know, I have a book. I have books all over the place around. Yeah, my own and many many other people. I've well, I've got thousands of physical comic books behind me on these shelves. You know, and it's uh it's a lot more fun to flip through them than it is to uh, look at them on the screen. But uh, I think that the the you know we've talked I've talked to you about this before. We've talked a lot about this on the show. Just the idea that. 
you know, science fiction was able to be a stand in for making political commentary in a way that you could get it on television. The Twilight Zone did that wonderfully. We've talked so much about Gene Roddenberry. The example I always go to is the episode with the the people who this side of the face is black and this side of the face is white. And then the other people, they hate the people who the white is on this side and the black is on the other. And it's just like, oh, you know, if you're looking at it and not paying attention, you're like, this is goofy science fiction. But it's really deep and making, you know, incredibly strong statements. And I think there's relevance to obviously these stories. And and, uh, yeah, I was going to mention point on. Uh, you're exactly right. Rod Serling had a situation like that when he wrote for like Playhouse 90 or Studio One, one of the great old live Golden Age shows in the mid, mid-50s. They were gone by the late 50s. But he wrote a script about racism and a uh, superb script. And basically what they said to him was, we can't do it. We love it. You know, we're all good liberals here and we all believe in the script and what you're saying. But if we air that, the stations in the South will not carry it. Uh, and we'll have the lowest ratings ever. And so, you know, Rod said, but I want to make this point. And they arrived at a compromise where he would make the point by setting it in some future and it wasn't black and white, but it was, you know, various different color groups, uh, alternate color groups in the future. And, oh, that's fine. You can have the exact same words. You can have the, the same attack on racial prejudice. But when you safely set it in the future, then it's okay. And Rod also, people tend to forget he loved Westerns and he loved writing Westerns for The Twilight Zone. There are a number of Western episodes that he and others wrote. And uh, he also did a Western TV show after called The Loner, starring Lloyd Bridges. And the whole show was about attacking McCarthyism or racism. But the moment you said it in the past, in the post-Civil War West, then, and very often you could do it by having dealing with Indians rather than African-Americans who were feeling prejudice. And the moment you do it that way, it's safe. and Nobody's going to complain. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, obviously, Rod Serling was uh, very prolific uh, long before The Twilight Zone. That's how The Twilight Zone comes about. Uh, You know, you're talking about Playhouse 90. You have uh, shows like Requiem for Heavyweight. And he also did an episode called Patterns that, you know, my wife worked on the TV show Mad Men for years. And the creator, Matthew Weiner, uh, was very heavily influenced by Patterns because, it you know, it's set. It, it was made in the era that Mad Men is set in, you know, the, the idea of early 60s office politics, working in advertising. And, you know, there's so much stuff that you can take and you can look at. And it's interesting, though, because obviously, you know, he was the face of the Twilight Zone. You know, he would do the narration and, and uh, you know, in the beginning. And he did not want to do that. Yeah, that, that makes he sense. actually. He wanted them to hire Orson Welles. And he wanted too much money. Well, and that's so, that 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 sounds like Orson Welles to me that he wanted too absolutely. much money. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, Rod, of course, uh, came in and said, "All right, he he was his own last choice to do it, final choice, and did it." Now, my feeling is it wouldn't work without him. Even with a great host like um, uh, Orson Welles, I don't think it would have worked the same way. It's like when in the mid '80s, Steven Spielberg 
did a series based on the great old comic strip, Amazing Stories. And Spielberg chose not to host it. And the show was not the hit they wanted it to be. I thought if he had hosted it, it would have been the show. How could he not? He's yeah, I mean, he's a wonderful there, character. There, there were some great right. stories on Amazing Stories Absolutely. that uh, have really lived on, and you know, the the effects were pretty impressive for television at the time. And I think you're right; that, it, that would have really pushed it over the top if Steven Spielberg had taken the time to be How involved in, on camera. I mean, because when you watch him speaking on TV, he's great. And uh, as Rod was, and I think that was the missing link, if you will, on Amazing Stories. Well, uh, I, I want to go back to the original Twilight Zone in a minute. But as we're talking about this, I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on there was also a new Twilight Zone in the 80s. There have been a few different incarnations. And there's one uh, within the last couple of years on what's now called Paramount Plus uh, done by Jordan Peele. Uh, and, you know, he's sort of the Rod Serling role. And, you know, they've done things like they've done sequels to 20,000, uh, sorry, Terror at uh, 20,000 feet. They did one called Terror at 30,000 feet. Uh, how do you feel that uh, these later attempts, including the most recent one, how do you feel that they've worked? Is it just really so tied in your mind to Rod Serling that, uh, that it's too much to overcome his absence? First of all, yes, uh, I, I do. But uh, the thing is, none of them work for me, including Twilight Zone, the movie. And I know that Rod's widow, who was involved in some of those later TV shows uh, and other projects to bring it back, one way in which uh, Carol Serling, who passed last year, uh, was able to bring it back was in book form. She did several books. I think one of them was called more stories or new stories for the Twilight Zone. And I was asked to contribute, and I did. Uh, she asked, you know, writers uh, who did do sci-fi and stuff, imaginative fantasy to contribute. I was one of them. And I wrote a story that Rod, before he, he passed himself in 1975, had liked called um, I, The Ides of Texas. And in it, Davy Crockett is dying at the Alamo, but before he can die, he disappears. And somebody has brought him back forward in time, 10 years, to save his life in 1846 with a time machine so that the great Crockett can go on living. And Crockett says, you robbed me of my legacy. The whole thing doesn't work without dying at the Alamo. I'll be completely forgotten no matter what I did for those 49 years. And they try to send him back. Please send me back. And the machine doesn't work. And it's all about Crockett trying to get back to, to 1836 so he can die at the Alamo. And he does in a very interesting kind of a way. It's included, The Ides of Texas, it's included in, I believe the book is called More Stories in the Twilight Zone. And that idea of her picking science fiction and imaginative fantasy writers she respected regarded of today to write new stories for it, but I was also required to write an intro and an outro, not in my own voice, but in Rod's voice. Uh, and I don't just mean that wonderful sound of his voice, but there was a way he arranged words. There was very a signature style. And the Ides of March is all written in my own style, very influenced by him. But I actually sat down and wrote the intro and outro as, you know, channeling Rod Serling. And I remember Carol uh, telling me that she thought mine was one of the most effective in that book. 
Uh, it's available on Amazon, uh, edited by Carol Salem. Uh, but uh, that's so important. And something else you bring up, I think, has to be mentioned. And here's a key distinction between Rod and Ray, Ray Bradbury. And that is Rod, in his early work, wanted to be a realistic writer. And that is, you mentioned two of the greatest, and there are others, but exactly right. Uh, for Playhouse 90, the story was Requiem for Heavyweight. He actually wanted, to, the original draft was called Requiem for a Lightweight. And uh, he had done some boxing himself. And people thought that might sound silly on TV. You know, Rod was a very physically small person. So they changed it, but it was meant to be autobiographical. And Patterns is absolutely autobiographical about a modern Rod Serling type guy writing in. And it was that TV show, The Office, for its own time. And though it's hard to get the original play, uh, uh, Studio One or Playhouse 90, whatever, it is was filmed in 1956-57. Van Heflin starred in the film version, and Turner Classic Movies does show it. So anybody who wants to pick up on your wonderful suggestion that you've got to see patterns. Uh, but what I'm getting at now is they were both totally, totally realistic. And then Rod wrote a play for a film TV series about 1957-58 called Desi, Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse, and uh, which Desi Arnaz hosted. And it was various, mostly serious dramas. But remember the hour-long I Love Lucy episodes? The hour-long... Sure. He appeared on that every once a month or two months. And Rod wrote a, uh, an imaginative fantasy story about a guy who walks into a bar and seeing a commemorative thing about television, uh, about the attack on Pearl Harbor, certainly in his own mind at least, goes back to Pearl Harbor. And can he prevent, he's there. And knowing what he knows, can he prevent the attack? And it was the most popular ever episode of Westinghouse Desilu Playoffs, a very good show. The Untouchables comes from that too. It appeared as a two-parter on that show. And the point is, uh, CBS approached Rod and he said, we love your script. Could you work that into a TV show? And that became The Twilight Zone. What I'm getting at is this. Rod said, sure, and it was wonderful. And he became typecast as either an imaginative fantasy or science fiction writer. There was a degree to which he was a wonderful person. And he was very humble, and he loved the success that he received from that. But there was always a degree to which he had a problem with because that's not how he saw himself. He wanted to be an almost Arthur Miller type Jewish American author, death of a salesman and work like that. Uh, that's what he set out to be, a realistic writer about the way we live today. And he was, and his earlier realistic writing, like the two you mentioned, have no touches of science fiction or imaginative fantasy in them at all. Now, he did not perceive himself as a genre writer. Ray Bradbury always did. From the time that he began writing his first stories, crime stories, and I want to mention that they've recently been re-released in book form, 
and I believe the title uh, Killer, Come Back to Me is the name of the, if you want to buy a book of, of race, crime stories, Pulp Fiction, almost like Elmore Leonard type crime stories. Uh, they're very good. And they're out now on Amazon. But what I'm getting at is every single one of those wonderful stories has a touch of either science fiction or imaginative fantasy or the supernatural in them. It may be only a touch, but it's there. And in Rod's early realistic writing, like Patterns and many others from Playhouse 90, uh, uh, Recreate for Heavyweight among them, there is no touch of genre at all. And so Ray Bradbury was very, very comfortable with being thought of as one of the two kings of sci-fi slash imaginative fantasy. Rod was never comfortable with that. And it did create something of a feud between them. And the feud was kept very quiet. But uh, there's a reason why only one Ray Bradbury story, I assume the Bob Body Electric, was ever interpreted into a Twilight Zone show. Uh, originally, Rod wanted Ray Bradbury stories on there all the time. He wanted so many of those stories adapted, but it was only the one because he heard that Ray Bradbury was speaking very nastily of him uh, to people. And he said, basically, Ray Bradbury's line was, it should have been me. That should be me hosting that show because this guy does not define himself as a generic writer of whether you call it science fiction or imaginative fantasy. And I do. And Rod was a bit resentful of that typecasting of himself. And Ray Bradbury had his revenge years later when he did, I believe it was on HBO, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Ray Bradbury Theater. Uh, yeah. That was his Twilight Zone, and it was his revenge for not being, you know. Now, again, the reason he didn't get to do a show back in the late 50s, early 60s, is was he had very little contact with TV. Rod Serling went right into television writing the moment World War II was over, and that's why he was in the right place at the right time, to, you know, write scripts, including that one Desilu script that became the Twilight Zone unofficial pilot. And Ray Bradbury did not have access to television. He had the genius and those great stories like Dandelion Wine, but which he considered the most personal of, of them. Uh, but he didn't have that access to TV. And it's, you know, you got to be in the right place at the right time. And Ray always felt that if he had been at the right place at the right time, it would have been him who had all that fame and fortune then. And um, when Rod heard that Ray was speaking not kindly of him, that's why there were no further adaptations. At the time, Rod put out a position paper and he said, Ray's stories are wonderful to read, but they don't translate well to the TV medium. And that's why we're not going to do any more of them. But we have great regard for his like, that's BS. When Years later, Ray translated them to TV, and you had the Ray Bradbury Theater. They translate wonderfully. And um, so that was a position paper for Rod. But that, I don't know if anybody said that 
outright as I just did to you, but having yeah. known both of them, Rod, much better than Ray. Yeah, so and and you referenced earlier that uh, Rod Sterling passed away in 1975. Ray Bradbury lived until 2012, so there was obviously uh, a lot more time for him to get further opportunities. And at some point, you know, I think you're, you're right, it was HBO that realized, like, we can have this sort of show, and I think it fit in with what they were doing. And, uh, you know, I know his uh, his health declined a little bit in later years, but, uh, you know, we, when, you know, mo- pretty much anybody who's watching the show knows that I produced Dennis Miller's radio show for a long time uh he dennis was so excited to get to talk to him and he was older and there was this nice woman who worked with him who was just like well let's just test it out one day in the afternoon just to make sure it sounds right anyway he talked slower and deliberate but dennis was like no i would talk to this guy you know it's too bad we didn't have podcasts back then because dennis would have done a whole hour with him instead because it was radio we did like 15 minutes and you know the guy was uh, still very sharp and you know just full of so many ideas and it's great that he had such an opportunity to share all of that. And I, I knew that he only did the one Twilight Zone, but I didn't realize it was as simple as as like, you know, petty, like ego and show business feuds, you know? Uh, just to give you an example, as you and Dennis both know, I wrote a series, a trilogy of books for Sunbury Press. Uh, the new one you mentioned, Midnight Matinees, is for Bear Manor Press, which I do books for. But I also write many books for Sunbury Press. And I wrote something with my son, Sean, called the Planet Jesus Trilogy. And basically, in it, Jesus is an ancient alien. And that, that's the basic concept. And there were many Twilight Zone episodes where Rod Serling hinted at something like that, where there is an alien who comes down and the people kill him and they realize, you know, maybe he was a kind of messiah. I remember a young actor named Jeffrey Horn, best known for the young guy in Bridge on the River Kwai, playing one of those type characters in a small Mexican town. The name of the episode escapes me. Um, I think Scavenger or Intruder or something like that. But that's what my Planet Jesus trilogy book is, that everything you look at that happened to Jesus can be seen as a miracle if you don't understand it. What you don't understand is a miracle. But if you study it closely, um, whether it's the parting of the Red Sea, but of course Moses, that can all be described scientifically, and many people have. And so it can be, you know, Jesus rising Lazarus from the grave. Well, there are people, you say it's a miracle if you don't understand it, but there are people who go into catatonic states where they seem to be dead, but aren't. And if you have a doctor standing next to you, you can discover this guy's not dead. He just seems to be dead. Well, who was standing next to Jesus when they looked at Lazarus? Luke, the Greek physician. And so they bring him out of the cave. Uh, in other words, it's a way of saying everything in the Bible happened, but it can be described as realistically, scientifically, as it can spiritually. And that was the whole idea of the, the Planet Jesus trilogy, uh, which has had some nice success, uh, in large part thanks to you and Dennis giving me exposure as a writer, which I hadn't had before. 
Yeah, no, and we're uh, happy to let everybody know that uh, obviously, just like anything, you can go get it on uh, Amazon now. Uh, you know, and I, I wanted to kind of one more thing on Rod Serling. Obviously, you talked about how he was savvy enough to get himself into television, and I think in in a lot of ways he understood the business of television. You know, I mentioned that I rewatched uh, I Sing the Body Electric last night. Uh, it's the thirty fifth episode of season three of the twilight zone and at the end of it he's telling us about next week and it was an episode that i'd never seen with uh, carol burnett which is called cavender is coming and it was it was very much uh, okay it was uh, it was but boy it sure felt derivative of it's a wonderful life but i know that that was intended as a pilot for a series yes. and uh i i i feel and i saw that he wrote it and I felt like to me, I'm like, well, that's the business man of him. He's like, I'm going to take the time to write this one because if it becomes a series, then it's my series. And you're I know exactly that. Right. Yeah, go ahead. Well, sorry. No, you're ex- no, no, no. I'm sorry. Uh, but you are exactly right. What you mentioned before, Rod, before he w- while he was writing the early TV stuff, he was also involved in TV production. And he wanted to be. And what you just said is so point on in that he wanted to be involved in the production element. And he produced as well as wrote the TV series uh, The Loner that starred um, uh, Lloyd Bridges as a kind of science fiction, politically active Western uh, in about 1965 or so. He also did another TV series, which he wrote the pilot for, called The New People uh, in 1970, which was a huge flop um, about people living on an island that was later stolen for a very famous TV series. What was it in the late 80s, early 90s called, um, was it called The Island? Uh, But again, Rod had that idea, but he, he wanted to be the Walt Disney of imaginative fiction. And even the, di- the idea of him hosting Twilight Zone was very much what Disney was doing with Family Fair. And Rod was a huge Walt Disney fan. I mean, in that episode, um, A Stop at Willoughby, when this man, very much like Rod, I think it's, no, it's not Gig Young, I'm trying to think who plays him, uh, but, uh, an actor who looks like Rod is sitting on a train in the modern times and he hates his office job. And all of a sudden he goes to sleep and the train stops in an uncharted place called Willoughby. And he gets off and it's the way things used to be, or at least the way they should be. And he walks around it. It was based, yeah, that's a Rod script, on Main Street USA in Disneyland. And uh, I remember Carol Rod's widow telling me some 20 years ago or so that everybody would think when Rod Serling visited Disneyland, uh, which he loved, his favorite place would be, sure, Tomorrowland. You couldn't get him off Main Street, USA. uh, It was like stepping off. And there's actually a train at Disney where you can step off the train onto Main Street, USA. And I think that was the inspiration for, um, you know, the, the, the very idea uh, of uh, that episode and Twilight Zone itself. And, and with what you said, 
It's a Wonderful Life by uh, Frank Capra. Um, there are a number of Rod Serling episodes that are It's a Wonderful Life influenced. Uh, Frank Capra was a big influence on Rod Serling. Uh, and uh, that, that whole, uh, the whole idea of It's a Wonderful Life, if you think it's science fiction, it's not. Because there's, you know, it's all spiritual, not scientifically explained, and that is, that is absolutely the Twilight Zone in embryo. It's more spiritual than science fiction, and that is the case with many Zone episodes. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting that you know it's the angel trying to get his wings. Uh, Carol Burnett realizes that uh, what she actually really wanted is what she had all along, and just the value you have as friends. You know, it was just like, oh boy, there's so many. They like check all the boxes, but uh, it was still entertaining because she's always delightful, and to see her in you know such an early part of her career, it was fun to watch. And the actor you were thinking of first stop at Willoughby's name is James Daly. Uh, that that was the name of the lead there. So not to not to give uh, undue credit to Gig Young. Big Young is in walking distance. Yeah. Um, you know, we made the comparison. Right. Uh, we uh, made the comparison a little while ago and I wanted to spend a few minutes because whenever I talk to you, I always love to talk about Star Trek because as I showed earlier, these, this is hardly all you've done about Star Trek, but uh, we talked in the past about Star Trek universe and Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek. And I, uh, the, these books are great for fans of it. Uh, I feel like, the opposite is true with Star Trek uh, in terms of Gene Roddenberry versus Rod Serling. Uh, there, it's very well documented that when they went to do Star Trek: The Next Generation, that the biggest obstacle they had to overcome was Gene. And uh, once he was less involved from season two onward, the show was really able to evolve. And it's not to diminish the contributions he had uh, with the original series. And I think keeping him around was certainly the way to do it. But he just had a vision for it that I, I think didn't work anymore. And Star Trek has got yesterday uh, was September 8th as we're recording this, that was Star Trek day because I believe it was 55 years since the show premiered. And, you know, for a show that was only on three seasons, uh, it's shocking the life that it continues to have. And, uh, you know, you and I have talked about some of the subsequent series. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts. Beginning with the animated series. Yeah. With the an animated series in the seventies. Fourth season. As it's yeah. The, the fourth season. Yeah. I know with the, you know, with the more oh, tribbles, more. Something. Uh, now, I have never met Gene Roddenberry in person in my life. You know, I'm a great fan, but I've sure. never met him as I have both Ray and Rod. Yeah. So I just want to. You know, no, no, yeah. I, and, and, but the, the point, the but point I is. Go ahead. No, I can't say Gene Roddenberry very much wanted Star Trek to be a science fiction show. He described it, he came up with the idea even as Wagon Train was going off the air. And he described it as wagon train as science fiction, which was just then coming into popularity on TV. It should have been a long time earlier. It had always been around for kids, Rocky Jones Space Ranger and Tom Corbett Space Cadet. But this was at a time when you had the Time Tunnel Show coming on TV. Just a few years later, Rod Serling's flop, The New People, but you also had uh, various other science fiction shows appear and TV was just then embracing sci-fi or imaginative fantasy 
for adults, and, and there are others. Uh, I guess Time Tunnel is one of the most famous ones, but you also had that family show, what was it called? Uh, Space Family Robinson? Or well, Lost in Space. Yeah, what I said was, but it was essentially, you're right, it was Space Family Robinson, but yeah, they called the it Lost in Space. That was the title of the original script. Oh, okay. Uh, and then they decided you know, they'd get sued or something. So yeah, probably. That's what it was. But they were popular. Sure. And um, so as TV was losing interest, because the public was in Westerns and Wagon Train was even then going off, um, Gene Rodberry said, we'll do Wagon Train again, uh, which had been a huge hit originally for NBC, uh, later on ABC. But, um, but this time it's in space. It's a brilliant idea. And I actually think Battlestar Galactica is much more wagon train in space. Oh, yeah. And think about it, than Star Trek is. Star Trek was brilliant, but in a whole different kind of a way. Uh, but what I'm, what I'm getting at is it was meant to be science fiction. They knew what they were talking about in those scripts, whether Gene wrote them or other people, in terms of a Jules Verne, H.G. Wells kind of a way. Whereas uh, Rod Serling's show was much more imaginative fantasy. They didn't, they very rarely, one of the few examples that to me is science fiction is the monsters are due on Maple Street. And um, uh, also another one that science fiction was always Dennis Miller used to say it was his favorite. It's a cookbook. You know, that, that uh, uh, oh, uh, uh, for, for all for all mankind is that what that one's called? Yeah, serve yeah. mankind to serve mankind. Oh, Sorry, yeah, yeah, science fiction. Yeah, uh, but in fact, uh, the, the typical ones were imaginative fantasy. How you get to the, uh, into outer space, you don't know, or to the past, the future, or whatever. You just get there, and that's much more the imaginative fantasy type of thing. Yeah, and it's always kind of a distinct a distinction for Star Trek is uh, taking the time to explain the science and how things work, and uh, you know, whereas uh, Star Wars they don't spend as much time with that. But to keep it on Star Trek, uh, I wanted to know what you think if you've had a chance to watch some of the newer series. You know, the the streamer is called Paramount Plus now. Uh, it was CBS All Access, and uh, I feel I've just been so impressed by a Star Trek Discovery because just. Yeah, the amount of money they spend on the series Star Trek Discovery is shocking. The effects are movie level effects. And to me, Star Trek Picard, it's a it's a lot more of like a nostalgia piece. It's so fun to see everyone. I don't think that the show is necessarily as great, but what do you think about sort of these later iterations? And yes, the, the more recent movies that, uh, you know, JJ Abrams company took over. Uh, why, do you think it, why do you think it still works? And what do you think about some of the, the more recent uh, iterations of Star Trek? Here's, here's my thoughts uh, in, in my mind. This is just my interpretation. Star Trek as a TV series could have been done five years earlier five years later. Uh, the way it was shot, the way it was scripted, the color combinations, that's all of the mid to late 60s. But the conception of the show, again, wagon train, this time in space. Uh, you could do it in very different ways, but that means it is science fiction. And for that reason, as you just said, if you do it right, you can reinterpret it Again, for example, so many of us believe that the odd numbered of the original set of movies 
were not that good, but that the even-numbered ones were quite brilliant. Sometimes you're going to succeed, and sometimes you're going to fail. And as you just said, with the TV series, some of them do work better than others. Now, I am not, I'm being honest, I'm not an addict of any of the series. I've watched them, I've been impressed by them. My three sons, uh, Shane, Sean, and Shay, and my grandson, Tyler, they are all quite, you know, addicts of it and love it. And, uh, that's wonderful. But what I'm getting at is uh, that because it was science fiction, you can redo it. What I'm getting at is the reason why Twilight Zone for me doesn't work is it was of that time, that place. It was of the late 50s, early 60s. Every single, you know, the, the Mike Wallace, a famous CBS newsman, who I think was very overrated. I, uh, I'm not a big fan. But the week before Twilight Zone came on television, Mike had him on his show. It was called Person to Person or, no, no, that was a great, Person to Person was a great show by a great broadcaster. I think that was Edward R. Murrow. Edward R. Murrow. Yeah. Brilliant. But Mike Wallace thought he was Edward R. Murrow, and many people did. I don't. Uh, but Mike Wallace uh, had Rod Serling live on the show, and he says to Rod, so you're doing a science fiction show. You've given up trying to write anything serious for TV. That was how Mike saw the world. And, of course, that's not so. Just to give you an example, that would be like saying to call Foreman with a script for a high noon. 1952. Oh, you're writing a Western. You've given up trying to write <laughs> anything serious. Yeah. High Noon is about McCarthyism in the 1950s. And because nobody would let you write a movie about McCarthyism, Arthur Miller writes a stage play called The Crucible, where he reinterprets the Salem witch trials as McCarthyism because everybody's afraid to put on his play about McCarthyism. Uh, Carl Foreman along with Stanley Kramer, who writes uh, High Noon, and uh, also great director, Fred Zinneman. But it's all about McCarthyism and how it's tearing the country apart, witch hunting. And um, only a fool would not see that. That's one of the reasons why John Wayne hated High Noon. He thought it was liberal propaganda, and he was approached to be in it and turned it down. What I'm getting at is that, of course, Rod Serling was in a state of shock. He couldn't believe it when Wallace, and he was, and he tried to explain to it, <clears throat> Mike Wallace, who didn't get it, no, no, no. I want to use, if you call it science fiction, I call it imaginative fantasy as a show that comments on everything that's wrong with the world today, whether it's attacking racism, uh, whether it's attacking Joe McCarthyism, uh, all those things, all the best episodes of Zone are full and rich with social commentary about the 50s. And that to me is the reason it doesn't work when you do it today. Not just the wonderful presence of Rod or the wonderful 1950s settings, but that it belonged to that place in that time. And when you bring it back today, the old episodes, like you watched several last night, um, it is, you know, a, a great thing of the 50s. It would like be trying to bring back Ozzie and Harriet today 
or the Honeymooners or I Love Lucy. They were of the 50s and they are the classics of the 50s or, you know, even the early Gunsmoke episodes. Uh, that was high noon as a weekly show. And that's what made it work. And um, uh, you can do a new Western that tries to be as good as the original Gunsmoke during its first three seasons when people like Charles Marquis Warren or Sam Peckinpah were doing it. But um, if you try to do a remake of it, it would be awful uh, because it was commenting on mentality of the 1950s dis disguised as a Western. Yeah, I think that's why when you do genre shows like that, you have to update them, you know, like uh, the the Western Deadwood. And then, you know, a lot of the science fiction, it, you know, you, you have to sort of take into consideration not just the sensibilities of the genre of television now, but also the people watching it. And what do they want to see? So point on. And, and the reason Deadwood worked is if they had, you know, what they said was, we want to do a Western show about a town that does in our own modern TV idiom. And for the modern TV audience, what Gunsmoke did in the 1950s and the TV idiom of that time for who was watching then. That's exactly what that show uh, Deadwood did. And I, I'm telling you, you know, I'm 78 years old. I could not get into Deadwood in a way that, let's say, a younger generation did, because I'm locked into the 50s. Sure. You know, well, one of, my, one of my very first books that I wrote was a film history book called Films of the 50s. And it was so popular that I did a follow-up called Lost Films of the 50s. <laughs> and they still sell on Amazon today. And I did another book only a few years ago called Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, in which I write about the, the counterculture that began around 1955 when I was a teenager through the late 50s, early 60s, up until 1970s. That's my era. And, um, you know, my era for TV Westerns was Wagon Train and Gunsmoke and Ride and a few others. And um, I couldn't click into uh, the, the new... Uh, uh, Deadwood show. I'm not saying it wasn't a great show. I'm saying it wasn't written for me and it wasn't supposed to be. Yeah, no, and no, I think that that's the thing to take into consideration. And I think that uh, people are so protective of the intellectual property that they grew up with when they have to realize, like, yes, it's associated with Star Trek, Star Wars, even Battlestar Galactica, but it's been updated for a new audience. You know, you can't just have the old audiences watching these things. And that's why I I personally really enjoy the, the new Star Trek series. And you're right, some of the ones over the years didn't work. I was never a fan of Voyager as much as I I thought Kate Mulgrew was great. Uh, I just, I, I just didn't love the show. And I, I think that, uh, you know, you, there are so many people that are inspired by it that come on board. And when you really love the property, but you're still kind of plugged into having done your other shows beforehand, you're able to really adapt it. And that's why it continues to work. You know, uh, you'd mentioned books that you wrote and uh, as uh, our time together uh, begins to dwindle, uh, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about one of your latest books, uh, Midnight Matinees for our video audience. You can see it right now. Cult cinema classics, 1896 to the present day. Uh, obviously, I think it's great that the book is broken up 
uh, and it's sort of by letter, you know, like chapter one, it's it's from A to A, et, et cetera. But I wanted you to talk about just for you personally, maybe one of your it doesn't have to be the ultimate favorite. But what do you think is the perfect example of this kind of midnight matinee, a, a cinema classic that very much might not have been appreciated in its day? Oh, well, I, I do have to give a fellow named John Tian, D-E-H-A-N, credit for the breakup. He produced the book. He designed the book. And that was his decision. I mean, everything in it written is by me. But the breakup by films, it's all alphabetical, A, B, C, and jumping from 1992 or 96 to the present day. Uh, and there are films from last year in there. Um, to me, uh, one of the things I want to point out is that cult film is not a permanent status. And I write about this. Uh, for example, uh, the movie It's a Wonderful Life, which we mentioned before by Frank Capra. Uh, it was a movie that came out, what, 19, I'm getting the year mixed up, 46, 47 or 48, right in there, right after World War II. And it was very much... Um, you know, America's lost its beauty and its charm, small-town America. Uh, a, a guy named Richard Schickel, a film critic, once called Walt Disney's work The Politics and Nostalgia. It's a wonderful phrase that could be true of Frank Capra, Walt Disney, of Rod Serling, uh, I think of Steven Spielberg. I, I think American popular culture is very often a politics and nostalgia. And It's a Wonderful Life was, we're not happy in the post-war world. Something was lost during these last four, five years of war, the beauty of small town America, if it ever really existed. Um, and then you have the flashbacks to that town, uh, which looks like Main Street, USA and Disney. Now, the thing is, the movie came out, it was kind of a flop at the time. Not as big a flop as people say, but it didn't really make money and it disappeared. They you know, read the public domain. And then it's a wonderful life because it was public domain any TV station could show it whenever they wanted to. And because it took place on Christmas Eve, people picked up prints that they, they could get for free and they showed it. You know, and they had advertisers and they made all the money showing it on local stations at midnight. And that's where I first saw it. This would be back in the very late 60s, uh, you know, um, uh, after everybody went to bed on Christmas Eve. And all I always wanted to see that film and never did. What I didn't know, was that people all over the country who um, didn't go to bed with the rest of the family stayed up and watched it and began to look forward to it each year. And the idea of a true cult film, It's a Wonderful Life, is to me maybe the ultimate cult film. And yet in the opening chapter of my book, Midnight Matinees, what I explain is that um, I don't believe it's a cult film anymore. Because at a certain time, if a cult film hangs with you, it goes from being a cult classic to an American classic. And the moment that NBC, I think it was, started airing at Christmas Eve on the network at, you know, eight o'clock, which they, I think they still do now. Yeah, uh, they do. For many years. But at that moment, you can't call it even a cult classic. It's a popular classic. Cult means a relatively small but loyal band of people. I think the same thing happened with Wizard of Oz, and you know, which was not a hit in its time. Every once in a while, it'd come back to theaters, and then CBS began broadcasting it 
right around 1960, uh, once a year on TV, and the audience was at first okay, not what they hoped for. They tried it again next year, it was bigger. The next year it was bigger still. And at that point in the 60s, uh, The Wizard of Oz became a true cult film. Every uh, ever more sizable audience waiting each year to see it again. Uh, and then the moment it came out on VHS and then DVD and the audience um, had been for the TV version on CBS had been huge. It diminished because now Turner was showing it. You could get it on home video and people were watching it every night. There are people who became, you know, addicts to watch it every night. At a certain point in my mind, the Wizard of Oz passed over from cult film to American classic, you know, along with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs or whatever, um, Gone with the Wind, which is sort of losing its classic status today as maybe it should because of what I believe is the racism, racism inherent in it, that people didn't want to acknowledge, but they have to now. But what I get at in the book is to call a film a cult classic. It's a cult classic at any one moment in time. And the 500 plus films that I talk about are in my mind, and I've been writing this book off and on for 15 years, are films that are cult classics right now. And maybe in two or three years, they'll have dropped out of sight. They won't be thought of as cult classics anymore. Or maybe, like The Wizard of Oz, and It's a Wonderful Life, they'll have achieved mainstream classic status, in which case they're not cult films. So this is a book very much, as I was saying before, for this time and place. These are what I believe to be the 500 plus leading cult classics in 2021. Two years later, I would have had different films included. Two years from now, I might as well. It's a book about cult classics for the moment. And I do want to mention, we have over 300 amazing pictures in it. And the vast majority of them have never been published before. Well, that's great. And, you know, for people who can see the cover right now, and obviously you can just look it up if you're uh, interested in buying it. But right there on the cover is uh, Reefer Madness. And the reason why I'm uh, focused on that is because people, I think, watch that movie for a different reason than they might watch something like Buckaroo Banzai. You know, there's uh, some of these movies that are featured in there. It's like, I don't know how I never heard about this just because it wasn't popular in the time. People watch a movie like Reefer Madness because of just, you know, how... uh, ludicrous it is and how it hasn't held up and it's not particularly well made uh you know when i was a kid and i continue to be a fan of there was uh, more than 30 years ago there's been this show called mystery science theater 3000 and it's fun because there's robots and there's jokes but at the heart of it is these cult classics and usually just really bad movies and sometimes just seeing a reefer madness or a plan nine from outer space you're just like well it's so entertaining because it's not you know like just a a, you know a, a bad movie can be really boring but an exceptionally bad movie can be fascinating because you know that people made the decisions to make them you know there is a division that i bring up in the book there are, well, there are many kinds of cult films, but if you want to dichotomize them, you just did very effectively in that there are what are called naive cult films and smart cult films. 
uh, Buckaroo Banzai is a cult film that knows it's a cult film. It was written, directed, and produced to be a cult film. And that cult sensibility is totally conscious in the making of it. And it's like, you know, uh, remember Chevy Chase is the original anchorman on SNL. I'm Chevy Chase and you're not. I'm smarter than you. Uh, that's the attitude we get from Buckaroo Banzai. Some people love that. You know, I'm hip, you're hip. Others don't. And I'm somewhat uncomfortable with that. What's so great about Reefer Madness is it's what's called a naive cult film. And that those people were not trying to make a cult film. They thought they were making a cinema classic. And it's so bad that it's great. If Buckaroo Banzai is so bad that it's great, it's so bad that it's great on purpose. And let me give you an example from right around 1960, two films that are in my book. Ed Wood Jr. made a movie called Plan 9 from Outer Space. It's one of the great cult films of that year, and it's naive. He thought he was making a great film. And there's that wonderful film that Tim Burton made about him, the Johnny Depp playing the part, Ed Wood. And he thought he was making it. This is the one they'll always remember me for. This is on a level with Citizen Kane. Well, it's one of the worst movies ever made. But when we watch it, we watch it like Reefer Madness. And the fun of it is, it doesn't know it's a bad film. The same year, Roger Corman made The Little Shop of Horrors. And The Little Shop of Horrors was made by very smart guys. Uh, Jack Nicholson included Roger, other incredible gifted writers who became very famous in the 70s when the, the new American cinema came into being. And they made it, can we make a movie in one day? Can we shoot an entire movie in one day and we'll purposefully make it bad? And that whole idea of uh, the monster, feed me, feed me. We laugh even as we do at certain things in Ed Wood's um, uh, you know, Grave Robbers from Outer Space, as you're supposed to be called. But again, Ed Wood did not know he was being unintentionally funny. Corman, Nicholson, and their crew, their people, they knew that they were doing this to be funny. And I remember as a kid seeing it in the theater and are laughing and realizing this is a pretty clever film. And that's a different kind of cult film that I address in Midnight Matinees. And that wonderful cover is also by John Tian. Yeah, and uh, as we said, the book uh, Midnight Matinees, Cult Cinema Classics, uh, 1896 to the Present Day. And uh, earlier we were speaking about the Planet Jesus trilogy. And, you know, if uh, there is a genre of film or an aspect of film history that you're interested in, Doug Brody has most likely written a book about it at some point. So just look him up on Amazon and uh, you'll find so many more uh, that. Uh, but uh, that's the latest. And I hope people uh, take the time to uh, read it and uh, you know they can uh, let you know and uh, you know uh, find out <clears throat> you'll find out what uh, everybody thinks about some of the films in there well Doug it's always a treat to talk to you the uh, hour plus flew by as it also always does but uh, it was wonderful and I knew that we would start with Ray Bradbury and we would go everywhere else and uh, I was uh, I was glad that you uh, had the time to come along for the ride and my next up for me, if we have just a, a moment. Sure, to absolutely. I'm doing a new book for Sunbury Press. It should be out, I'm hoping, in three months. And it's going to be called Disney Anity. 
And in it, I argue that people's love for Disney is not simply love for pop culture and entertainment, that Disney has become an unofficial religion to people. And I try to prove that it's become a spiritual thing. And uh, maybe we'll even get to talk about it on the show. Yeah, no, I would uh, love to do that. And I mean, you know, Disney as a brand has uh, only uh, just sort of, you know, it, it's it, it's sort of like the old movie, The Blob. It's a, it's absorbed Star Wars and Marvel and, uh, you know, exactly. National Geographic and Fox and so many other things, you know. Well, I do believe that Star Trek and Star Wars and to a degree Harry Potter have a certain religious appeal to their fans and they have huge they started as cult things they have huge fan bases now but my point is disney is the ultimate now. yeah and no no i think i think I, you're I, absolutely I, right the ultimate, how pop culture um basically popular culture as secretive spiritual subtexts uh, and uh, once again, our friend Dominica Saxon says that this was a great interview. Thanks, Mr. Brody. Uh, we appreciate uh, Dominicus and everybody who was there in the chat. Uh, more than anything, we appreciate Doug Brody for his time. Please uh, check him out on Amazon. Thanks again, Doug Brody. Thank you for your time. I'm uh, sure that we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks to everybody. We'll see you next time on the podcast. Awesome.